You're listening to the DST Podcast. Get ready to grow your wealth with insights and investment strategies for making tax-efficient real estate investments in Delaware Statutory Trust 1031 exchanges. And now, here's your host, Jimmy Atkinson. 2022 obviously was a very challenging year for investors and investment fund companies who are looking to raise equity, but amidst the economic headwinds, there have been a few success stories and One such story that we'll be talking about today is Capital Square, which, in spite of the market downturn, managed to put together a record-setting year. Capital Square's chief sales officer, James Brunger, is here with me today. James, Happy New Year. Great to see you back here on the podcast. Welcome back. Thanks, Jimmy. Great to see you. Happy New Year as well. Uh, And thanks for the kudos, too. It was a fantastic year. Yeah, it was. And and I want to get into that specifically, and I want to put some context around how it was a record-setting year for you guys and and for some parts of the real estate investment industry, despite some economic headwinds that I mentioned. Uh, we'll get to that in a moment. And of course, we'll talk opportunity zones as well. Um, but first, just to start us off, James, I'm sure that most of our audience of high net worth investors and financial advisors are very familiar with Capital Square. You guys are obviously a very big name in the tax-advantaged real estate industry, but for any of our listeners and viewers who aren't yet familiar, can you give us a brief introduction to Capital Square and your role there? Oh, yeah, sure. Absolutely. And thank you again. Uh, so Capital Square, we're a tax advantage real estate sponsor. We're based and headquartered in Richmond, Virginia, with offices in Washington, D.C., as well as Newport Beach, California. Uh, been around 10 years, celebrated our 10th anniversary, uh, which is fantastic. When I say tax advantage, our core competencies are around 1031 programs uh, called Delaware Statutory Trust. Obviously, Opportunity Zone Development Programs, uh, and in addition to that, Real Estate Investment Trusts, and then also other types of investments um, that provide, uh, j- just by the nature of real estate, some great tax opportunities, tax saving opportunities for investors. Uh, 110 employees now, which is fantastic. It was a very big year and also a very big growth year in headcount, but well needed simply because we were trying to keep up with ourselves, which is great. So anybody on the call, uh, anybody on the podcast who's an investor and has uh, looked at us before, thank you for your confidence. It really was uh, a fantastic year and we continue to grow at a breakneck pace. Uh, last thing, just to be uh, you know, uh, clear, we are very focused in the southeastern United States, branching out to Texas and some markets in the Midwest, and very focused on multifamily solutions, both on the development side and opportunity zones, as well as anything we buy on the core side. Experience across all spectrums, but definitely uh, we look at the lens from a housing solution side when it comes to our real estate programs. Good. And in your role there, James, I understand oh, yeah. uh, you were you were recently given a promotion uh, in title, at least uh, to chief sales officer. Tell us about what you do there at the company. Uh, fortunately, I have my hands on a lot of different stuff. But yes, my primary goal is running the sales and distribution efforts where I have about 20 professionals uh, who are out in the field working primarily directly with financial advisors and registered investment advisors and their best clients on solutions for their real estate investment programs. Um, I do also sit on investment committee. I'm on the executive committee. Uh, like I said, I do have my hands on a lot of things. Some of my colleagues probably wouldn't, uh, would like me out of some of that stuff. No, uh, in all seriousness, um, I really enjoy having a good seat at the table and helping run and grow the company, which has just been a fantastic thing for the last four years. 
good. Uh, you guys had an incredible year. I want to talk about that in a minute. Uh, cut to the chase, though. I'll just drop the number. You guys managed to raise over $1 billion in equity, uh, which is which is rather impressive given the the tough times that we were in last year with respect to the market downturn. Um, but first, I wanted to pick up on on something that you mentioned in your in your last response, James, which was you do have a couple of different programs that you're putting investors into. One is the Opportunity Zone program, uh, which forms a, a pretty good piece of your business. But by far and away, the largest part of your business is that DST platform, that Delaware Statutory Trust platform. And there's obviously differences between those two programs. And we've covered those differences on this podcast a couple of times in the past. But you mentioned some strategies, right? You mentioned uh, ground up development risk type strategies that typically get put into opportunity zones. Do you have any of those in your DST? Or I think maybe a DST legally has to be core or core plus holdings. Can you can you go into the, the specifics on that a little bit for us? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm assuming you might have covered some of this before, but just as kind of a refresher, Delaware Statutory Trust, they have to be core in nature. You can have no non-structural or structural improvements to the property. That's actually more around the 1031 rules than it is specific to DSTs. Um, it, but DSTs themselves, uh, you know, in 1031, you have to have your construction finished, occupied, and the property in service for investment purposes within your 180-day time frame. So 1031, you have 45 days to name, 180 to invest. You would have to invest in a program, so essentially a development that was done within 180 days. DSTs take that restriction even kind of one step further. Um, really no, uh, you know, structural improvements uh, associated with properties organized under Delaware Statutory Trust, uh, you know, guidelines specific to the private letter ruling that allows DSTs 2004 uh, to qualify for 1031 exchange if organized correctly. Um, in our case, really that limits to value add and mainly interior unit value add. Um, you can't take a piece of land and build something new after you raise money for a DST. Uh, really just a big, big against the rules. And part of the reason why is it's not necessarily in service at the time of the exchange as a income producing investment property. So um, there's a little bit broader approach, but I just want to be clear, specific to our programs, when we look at ground up development, they will always be either inside of an opportunity opportunity zone, primarily inside of an opportunity zone, or will be uh, in a non-tax uh, wrapper LLC or direct investment opportunity. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but they'd probably only fall into that latter category if they if the location didn't fall within the geographic boundary of an opportunity zone, is that right? Or is there, would there be any other reason why you would do it that way? Now you're on to this. If we find something that's really good and we like doing, we like the deal and namely some of the specifics of the deal, and we can cover a couple of these, but the specifics of the deal, housing shortage, uh, again, we're housing focused, um, good job growth, great market, uh, not a lot of competition from the development side, even if it's not an opportunity zone, we want to be able to bring that out to investors and advisors uh, on a nice opportunity to take advantage of looking at good return profile over time in a development project. Right. Without fail, though, you're, you're absolutely correct, kind of alluding to this. 
Uh, we love to find those same type of dynamics in an opportunity zone. And primarily because we're a development company, uh, but we're also really good operators. Since our DST programs are all core, stabilized programs, we're running those for a really long period of time. It really is making money through the operation of those programs and those properties. You know, on opportunity zones, you know, part of the return is developing the program, but the majority of the return due to the long nature of the whole time frame, 10 years, um, really is involved on your ability to operate it well. So long way of saying, absolutely, if, we, if we're looking at deals, we're looking in a market, what first and foremost, what kind of opportunities does they have, right? You know, where, where are the zones, right? We, we get the map out and we try and figure out if we can get inside of a zone and have good solutions on that housing, uh, on the housing front for that community in the opportunity zone, providing the best tax advantage. However, if it makes a lot of sense from a pure investment thesis, we'll certainly bring it out to market as a uh, good development investment opportunity. Good. Well, th thanks for that breakdown there, the difference between those two different types of programs. They are two very different strategies. Um, I, won't, I won't belabor that point. We've got other podcast episodes that went deep into the differences between those two strategies. Maybe I'll link to a couple of them in the show notes for today's episode, but wanted to get back to uh the the intro the what i teed up in the intro which was you guys having a great year in spite of some headwinds james just anecdotally at least i've heard from a lot of investors and 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 uh fund sponsors deal sponsors that capital raising across the private equity real estate industry and in particular in opportunity zones uh in the first few months of the year was actually really good um dsts in particular were flying off the shelves Late last year, I should say late 21 and, and into 2022 for the first few weeks or a couple months, um, as I mentioned, OZ's had some good momentum, right? Uh, but then we had the subsequent market downturn. The first six months of 2022 represented the worst first six-month period for equities in over 40 years. We had a huge downturn in the S&P 500, the broader stock market, bonds, showed some trouble. If you were in crypto, you got hammered as well. I always like to uh, mention crypto for a second there for, <laughs> for any crypto nerds. Um, bottom line, the markets were in turmoil. Inflation was raging. Capital raising slowed, I think at least. Anyway, that's anecdotally what I heard, have heard. And, and it, in general, it was just a tough year. A lot of investor uncertainty and investor hesitancy. Um, but in spite of all that, you guys had some really good success. And I'll just read directly from your press release right now that says that in 2022, Capital Square acquired more than $2.29 billion in real estate based on investment cost, raised more than $1 billion in equity for its investment programs, and took five DST programs full cycle. Uh, it was a record year for you guys. What, what was it that you did differently to have such a successful year? Is there something unique about your strategy? And basically, why do your investors like you so much? Yeah. Um, they really like us. No. Uh, you know, thank you. I'm a little embarrassed in that. I'm not blushing because I'm, I'm hard to blush. But the reality is, is that a billion dollars is just such a huge number. And it's, uh, you know, a few years, few very few short years ago, we were about 450 million in total assets under management. And today we stand at about 6.5 billion. So, um, the trajectory has been there for us. I'll say first and foremost, 
uh, the beginning of 22 was very successful for us. Um, and a lot of that was a continuation from a massive growth in 21. Uh, we went, we, we, uh, we did about $840 million of equity sales in 2021. A lot of that opportunity zones actually as well. Um, and then the first kind of quarter, we saw that continuation. And really, to your point on DSTs, the first quarter, we saw really about $225 million a week in DST sales across the industry, but only about a billion dollars in total product available. So really about a four and a half, five-week supply at any given time. We uh, really, uh, and this goes all the way back to COVID, in our housing, uh, you know, properties in all of our multifamilies, we like everybody. When COVID hit in March of 2020, we were a little bit gun shy, and uh, we realized after about the first month, two months, month and a half of collections, our collections went up, and our occupancy stayed very stable and went up, and it really proved that housing is a core necessity. And even in the wake of, you know, unheralded and unheralded pandemic, um, housing matters and where you live matters and people are willing to spend as well. So we, we started a strategy then of buying and deploying a lot of capital and really focusing on growth. I, I bring it all the way back then because a lot of other in, you know, people in the industry and just frankly, a lot of real estate investment firms, period, across the spectrum, even the largest global ones, where pencils down, we were underwriting deals. And we carried that momentum so that we were able to have product uh, when others weren't through 21, 22. I'll give, you know, through the first half of 22, um, I give a lot of credit to our chief investment officer and now co-CEO, Whit Huffman, and his team. They capitalized on relationships that became, we became the forefront of 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 the industry and the purchase and the acquisition side because of the activity had in 20 when the world was kind of shut down and that that carried us and continues to carry us today we're now known as conscientious good buyers who close on time and effectively and efficiently and for those of you in the institutional industry that really matters right when you're bidding for deals it's often not the highest price that wins it's those who have the ability to close on time effectively and not retrade. And so that carried us on the acquisition, the product side, even as things slowed and the equity market slowed, we continued to move up in market share in the DST uh, space and, and even getting in deals and opportunity zones, which are coming out today, you know, now those those that time frame gave us an opportunity to expand. So I, I, I'd say that first and foremost. And then the, the second thing is, as you pointed out, we also have very fortunately had an outstanding uh, and continue to have an outstanding long-term track record of full cycle and deals when we sell. We 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 underpromise, over deliver in general, and it's been proven out time and time again. That also helped us steal some market share when things started to slow. Uh, I will say third, the third quarter of 2022 is our number one largest quarter in company history as far as equity raised. And then it, there was a marked slowdown in Q4 uh, of about a 40% drop in our core 1031 business. Um, the industry dropped by about 50% Q1 to Q4. And that has everything to do with the Fed 
And, and again, you mentioned all of the, the bloodbath in a lot of the markets, why it was tough. Uh, nobody's immune to what the Fed has, has tried to do with the blunt instrument of interest rates. And uh, we've certainly seen that. Um, we just, you know, it, backing up to what you said, why do your clients like you? Um, under promise, over deliver, do it all on time or faster than expected. And over time, that confidence grows and builds really in any of the programs. And then on the other side, our, our clients uh, benefit from the relationships that we carry on the acquisition side. And that is also built over time of we will buy this at this price at this time frame and executing and closing and giving us the opportunity to win deals, even uh, at maybe a slightly reduced price that benefits our investors even at the start. So uh, a lot there to unpack. But, um, you know, the last thing, obviously, I'll mention, we have increased the sales team. We've increased the support. We've increased our investor relations. We have an investment portal now to make it easy for people to get information. Uh, and we have um, a really just great base of distribution through advisors and registered investment advisors who, uh, you know, have been um, just outstanding for us. So those investments are other things that paid off. Um, and, you know, really the team just got out there and got after it. Uh, it's interesting, the bloodbath that happened towards the end of the year and obviously throughout the course of the year in the equity markets, um, it's all, I don't want to say it was superficial, but it feels like it's not as bad as it sounds, right? So maybe that's the other thing, too. We're just really optimistic. That's it. We're just optimistic all the time, Jimmy. I think that's part of it, right? There is some infectious optimism uh, around here in spite of some of the headwinds that I laid out in my intro. Well, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned that maybe maybe there's some some reason for optimism, and I can kind of paint a somewhat optimistic picture, and, and that is that quite a bit of capital was still raised by Opportunity Zones last year. And in fact, just before we, we hit the record button and officially went on the air here, James, you uh, brought up the point to me that OZs actually outraised DSTs last year. Is that correct? Can you put some, some, yeah. uh, some context around that, some numbers there? Absolutely. So the entire 1031 DST industry, syndicated industry, raised $9.2 billion uh, as tracked by Mountain Dell, kind of the leader in tracking, and then also backed up by Stanger, uh, Kevin Gannon's firm. Uh, anyway, um, in addition to that, uh, Novogratic is one of the larger uh, collector, collectors of information associated with Opportunity Zone funding and, and mainly funds. Out of all the funds they tracked, Opportunity Zones raised $10 billion. So, uh, and, and I just want to be clear, that's just the funds that Nova Gratic, a leader in the industry, a leader in information, a leader in the accounting side as well, uh, that's just the ones that they track. So that number of how much was actually raised in OZs is probably far larger than that $10 billion. Uh, they the estimate, sorry to interject, but yeah. they estimate that probably you need to triple or quadruple their number to arrive yeah. at the total aggregate number. Um, I'm not sure how they figured that out, but that, that that's their estimate of how far off they are at least. So, but, but that, that would put us at maybe 30 billion plus raised last and, year, which is pretty impressive. Well, given, uh, everything we just said, right. And considering um, the infancy 
you, you have to keep in mind, uh, uh, Delaware Statutory Trust, so syndicated 1031s through DSTs, a private letter ruling 2004 gave guidance to allow for the structure to be qualified. And, and since then, you've seen the industry kind of grow. So really an industry that's about 18 years old, right? Uh, but in, in earnest, probably an industry that's maybe about 10 years old. Well, Opportunity Zones, you know, 2070 Tax and Jobs Cut Act, they really didn't get off the ground until 19, right? So OZs are really about three years old. And it shows you uh, that there's a massive, massive investment universe in opportunity and also just really big growth. Part of the reason why is they function as they were originally intended to, uh, providing capital into undercapitalized communities uh, and allowing for that certain tax advantages for that capital would, to be deployed. Uh, in our case, happens to be provided housing. There's all kinds of other funds associated with private equity or investments in these undercapitalized communities. So um, really, it's it's amazing to see and just for our purposes at Capital Square, continued focus. We are launching, we have OZ7, which you see the rendering right behind me. We're launching OZ8, which is an apartment complex in uh, Knoxville. And we're launching OZ9, uh, uh, which will be a uh, kind of multi-plan phase community in Grand Junction, Colorado, really Western Colorado. But you know, all of that's launching before March for us. And it, it has to do with the fact that there is great demand. I know there's less capital gains in the market, which is really a, a driver of some of the investment. But overall, the, the market in OZs are still just reaching their infancy, but they've worked. Uh, the ones that we've gone to full stabilization, we've constructed, we've gotten to the market, we've filled them up with tenants. They're operating very well. Um, again, a little under promise over deliver both on our cash flow and our refinance proceeds and our rents. So it's great. Good to see. But, you know, providing that housing, the community is just rallying even more support, both on the political side and then obviously from the investment and advisor uh, advisor base as well. I expect it to continue. I know you you're you have your finger on the pulse of a lot of this. Uh, but I, I, I bet you that number gets even higher this year, even with capital gains being a little bit more muted. Well, I hope you're right. Uh, and, you know, you mentioned opportunity zones are still in their infancy. And despite being, I guess, despite DSTs having a 15 year head start on opportunity zones and already being kind of ingrained into real estate investors psyche in terms of what a 1031 exchange is granted dst's a little bit of a different beast but it's based on a program that's now 100 years old the right. 1031 exchange right right and and in spite of uh that huge head start that the dst uh, platform if you will marketplace if you will has on opportunity zones opportunity zones has already surpassed it by maybe two or threefold, um, at least the numbers last year. If you consider Novogratz numbers, you multiply that by three or four and compare it to Mountain Dells or to, to Kevin Gannon's numbers at, at Robert A. Stanger and company, right? James, am I, am I, do I have that right? Yeah, I, I, I think you do. And I mean, I'm, I'm smiling and laughing a little bit. I've known you quite a while now. And obviously you were kind of a leader in the information and distribution of information in, in a space, a platform for people to learn, number one, and then obviously see funds and opportunities to invest in opportunity zones. And, you know, I mean, I, I, I feel like you and I, like three or four years ago, 
we're looking at each other going, is anybody going to pay attention to this? And now to, you know, see that the numbers have outgrown even our core business, uh, you know, it's, it's really um, a, an amazing thing. I also am very fortunate to spend some time with Senator Scott, one of the uh, one of the funders or one of the original underwriters and writers of the Tax and Jobs Cut Act that introduced the uh, bipartisan legislation with Cory Booker out of New Jersey um, about the extension. So, I, I mean, I'd, I'd be happy to go into a little bit more, but there is a bill that was uh, a proposed last year and likely to hit the floor here in the near term this year that would extend the overall tax benefit and deferral time frame for opportunity zones. I only think that adds more interest and and investment into the space uh, when and if it it gets passed, uh, which which looks favorably. So, I mean, for you and me to, you know, four years ago have, is anybody going to pay attention, be it 30, 40 billion today, 10 million reported to the main uh, collector of information, could it be 50, 60 billion of total equity investment and then provide that, you know, you know, the original attention, which is, you know, capital to undercapitalized communities? Um, really, I, I don't I don't know if any legislation could be more of a home run of using, you know, economic forces to get uh, investment in communities that otherwise would have continued to be underinvested in. So really exciting. Still very exciting in the opportunity zone space. Yeah, no, absolutely, James. I think you're preaching to the choir now, of course. Uh, I, I do want to ask you a little bit more about that legislation toward the end of the episode today. Sure. Uh, we'll, I'll make sure I save a couple minutes toward the end I, I, uh, for, for, for us to talk about that a little bit more. We've covered it a lot um, in, in 2022 since it was first introduced last April, but we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, wanted to talk fundraising numbers with you a little bit more. That's what the bulk of this episode is about. Uh, so we were just discussing how Opportunity Zones, despite some headwinds, uh, despite how new it is, and it's a little bit, maybe it's kind of a clunky program, or at least it's clunky in the sense that it, it, it takes a little bit of a learning curve. It's only a few years old, has surpassed ESTs in terms of equity raising by a pretty good amount in 2022. Um, now, that said, though, I look at Capital Square's numbers. Uh, I have the breakdown of the $1 billion plus that Capital Square raised last year, and your DST program is by far and away the bulk of your equity raising. $955 million you guys raised through your DST program last year compared to $57 million through your Opportunity Zone program, all your different qualified opportunity funds. Uh, do you expect your OZ program to go- grow over the next few years relative to your DST program, or are you still leaning into DSTs? Um, where it looks like, I guess, if I'm recalling um, the numbers correctly, you guys have captured close to 10% of the the marketplace there for DSTs. Is that right? And and what's your strategy going forward with those two programs? Sure. No, it's a, a great question. Um, and I, I've got a couple of things to unpack there. But number, number one, going forward, I'll just give you scale. Uh, if we maintain that 10% market share, maybe improve it a little bit in DSTs, I'd be thrilled. Um, it, it, you know, For us to have grown to this spot, we've kind of reached our goal, if you will. It, it would be nice to get a little bit closer to 14 or 15%. But there are some really great providers in the space. Uh, in addition, I would say to us, arguably us being one of the great providers, 
Um, so it's really been a nice, good maturity of the DST space and seeing some really great real estate companies in there. For us to get up to 15%, that would be kind of the high goal to maintain that 10 to 15%. I'd be perfectly thrilled. Uh, when we look at the growth of our business over the next few years, it really is on the backs of our development and our focus in development, uh, which obviously is inclusive of opportunity zones. Um, in addition to that, we have our own REIT, but the REIT, the REIT is not quite as much in focus for the shorter term. It's more kind of a three to five year, but really over this year and years to come, I, I have targets to grow our opportunity zone business and capital raised by 300% this year, and then grow again by about 200% next year. So a big focus is in getting great programs out in the marketplace for investment opportunities. Uh, the other side to unpack there is, I made a mistake. Uh, in 2021, uh, we had some great opportunity zone programs and we actually sold more in uh, equity rates in opportunity zones in 2021 than we did in 2022. My mistake is, is that I didn't think they would all sell out as fast as they did in 2021. So we were a little behind the curve in getting really great programs and investment opportunities out to investors in 2022. Um, for a lack of a better term, I didn't have quite as much vision as I might have today. Uh, and we're a little bit more focused on making sure we have great programs. I, the last thing I impact there, though, is we really are, and, and this kind of, I didn't bring this up at the beginning about Capital Square, we're focused primarily on single asset opportunity zones. We don't raise multi and we don't raise blind pools. So what I mean that, by that, that that's why you're on fund seven and eight and nine and 10 are coming up, right? You roll them out as each project is ready for equity raising, right? That's right. And, and what that does is that gives, we, we really like that. We've listened to the advisors. We've listened to our investors. It, it gives them a lot of clarity and vision of what they're investing in on time frames, on deliverables, and, and frankly, on the risks to a degree. Um, you know, and again, I'm not knocking any of my, uh, you know, uh, colleagues in the industry raising money in opportunity zones. They all have the greatest of intentions and will ideally be very successful in what they do. Our vision is just one to make sure that we have great programs fully underwritten uh, and ready to go. Uh, we're as close to underwriting as we can before we bring it out for investment opportunity. So, my mistake was uh, well-intended, and thank you to everybody who invested with us in 21, but you basically sold out what I was trying to sell last year, uh, a year early. Now, as you can tell, we, we have uh, this fund, OZ7. OZ8 is actually launching uh, uh, next week, which is good here in the uh, beginning January, uh, middle of the uh, third week of January, which is nice. Uh, and then OZ9 will mar uh, launch right at the beginning of March. So um, lesson learned, uh, our sales are down. They won't be down this year because I'm going to have great product available a lot faster than I did uh, and working with our development side uh, a lot faster than I did last year. <laughs> and, you're, and you're expecting to raise probably well over $100 million in your OZ program for 23 then? Yep. Uh, we're targeting about $175 million in opportunity zone equity. So that'll build somewhere around uh, $550, million, $600 million of property. Uh, value, gross property value, gross asset value, and stabilization, uh, and then about another $7,500 million associated with non-opportunity zone development projects, again, multifamily projects, some more private equity focus. 
Um, you know, I take that in consideration when I look at my total development equity raise. But just on the OZs, you can see at 175 million will be that 300% growth goal. I, I will say we have um, a number of other projects lined up either options, LOIs, or actually land purchased in opportunity zones. But we we are waiting to see, just because their their development timeframes are a little bit longer, we're going to wait to see what really happens on the extension legislation that we've mentioned. So what, one thing I'm picking up on, though, is Capital Square, correct me if I'm wrong, you guys really made a name for yourself in the DST, with your DST program over the last decade plus. Um, opportunity zones come around and you're, you're going in on opportunity zones, but it does require a pretty big strategy shift. You need to lean into your development skill much more so than, than you really don't need much in, in the way of development, uh, ground up construction for DST products. So, so how do you make that transition and, and why is now the time to make that change within your company to uh, lean more heavily on development? Yeah, no, great question. Um, we added, we're very fortunate, Adam Stiefel is our head of development. He has a long track record, and we're very fortunate. In 2018, he merged his company with Capital Square to create Capital Square Development. Uh, a lot of that under the vision of uh, Whit Huffman, who I mentioned before, who had, had a pretty good background in both uh, you know, purchase of stabilized core real estate, but then development, specifically multifamily de development all around the Washington, D.C. area for a now public, publicly traded company called JBG, uh, JBG Smith. Um, so it, this sounds weird, but it's kind of in our DNA uh, more than just acquiring core stabilized DSC real estate. Um, you know, the Opportunity Zone program gave us an, oppor an opportunity, for you the pun, to be able to, um, you know, expand into one of our core competencies for really the lead, some of the leaders of our company. Um, it was all, always part of the vision uh, where it worked really well for us when we saw the opportunity, we dug into it again, 2018, bringing the development company in-house, uh, where we saw that opportunity is it really truly is unique to being a good developer and a very good operator. Again, the long time frame, you know, you have three years or so in development, but you have seven years in operations. So if you're a, a good builder operator, you're going to do pretty well. There's good firms out there like us that can do that as well. We saw that as opportunity, gave us the, the, the chance to branch. Now that we've reached and have a, a, a track record, we've reached stabilization, we've delivered three, and now we're delivering our fourth Opportunity Zone project this month. Um, and and with, with great, great results, uh, it gives us even better opportunity to continue that. We've been able to hire very well. We did add, I, I can't remember what the press release says. I feel like we added 26 or 28 people last year. Um, it's amazing to see the growth. The, the, those people, a lot of those heavy development-focused backgrounds, outstanding people that you know have kind of caught the vision of where we're going. Um, many through relationships that we've carried from some of our other colleagues, uh, many uh, you know who have seen what we've been able to do, do and would, would like to participate. Um, it's been just a great thing to see. The, the last thing I'll mention, even under DSTs, we've always had a construction management 
uh, division that reviews uh, before we buy properties. We always get third-party property condition assessments, PCAs, uh, but our internal construction management headed by Mike Ollinger, uh, they've always participated, even in our stabilized programs, reviewing any kind of deferred maintenance capital expenses that may come up, going through with a fine-tooth comb, and then also looking at any value-add opportunity and really the construction costs of that. They cross over from kind of development as well as the DST, so OZ and DST. But then on the backs of that, we beefed up and continued to really, you know, hire out in the opportunity zone development side of the company. Um, you know, I, I, the last thing I'll say is that it was always kind of part of the vision. Um, and then sometimes you take what Congress gives you. So especially under the opportunity zone legislation, it just kind of, you know, got us a little more motivated. Yeah, than was- we might. I was going to say, I was going to say the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act and the OZ provision in particular, it kind of gave you that excuse to finally make that pivot that that you guys, it sounds like you guys had been planning on looking, looking for a way to do it. So now that said, though, you know, we we started with a rather pessimistic, bleak view of things at the beginning of the episode. We turned things around with the success story of of Capital Square and all the capital that's been raised by OZs uh, per per the Novogratic numbers. But now kind of turning ahead to 2023 what's your what does the trajectory look like for 2023 given that there aren't a lot of gains out there or i should say there are still a lot of gains out there but clearly they have been diminished a lot by the downturn in the market over the last years is there a challenge there in in raising capital for equity i should say for for opportunity zones in 23 uh yet to be seen because we're still seeing about the same consistent numbers that we were seeing really through the course of last year uh, had a big spike at the end of 21 and it had to do with the fact that the uh, there's an additional benefit of basis adjustment but um, I'm going to answer that question more so on development versus just opportunity zones and the reason why when you when you're a developer it's really amazing to me and this has been for me just been fascinating growth in my knowledge of real estate investments is that you know you you really have to be a, a future teller right yet you, you kind of have to take all of the data all of the science all of the trend lines and say you know four years from now three years from now when this building is done uh this is what's going to be happening here right and there's risk to that that's also why obviously investment returns are generally projected and can be much higher in development real estate than core real estate. You have no income while it's being done. You have all kinds of risks. You de-risk wherever you can. You get your GMP, your guaranteed maximum price on construction, et cetera. But really, you have to have a, be a future teller. In the development side, it's kind of linear. Three, four years from now, what does it look like, right? On the opportunity zone side, you get a little bit more forgiveness. And I say that simply because the forgiveness is What's it look like three, four years from now when we deliver, but what's it look like over the next 10 years, right? Because that's really the minimum hold time frame. And so, you know, when, when, you, when you have that and that ability and that vision, it, you know, the current world, lack of gain, trouble in the water, interest rate spikes like we haven't seen really, you know, in most of a generation, uh, I'm a little bit older than than our average employee, and most of them didn't experience a lot of what I, I've experienced in my career. Uh, you know, you look at that, and, and it takes long with a way of answering your question. It takes a lot less pressure of what's going on today, and more about what does the future look like over time 
for us, it's lack of housing, lack of quality housing. And then, frankly, you know, the the more immediate theory of recency, the recent past will continue on for the indefinite future. No, interest rates won't go up forever at the fast pace of which they will. And I got news for you. Inflation isn't going to stay at the same pace that it's been either, right? Again, the, the blunt instrument that the Fed has deployed effectively, I would say, um, you know, isn't going to be around forever. And so long, long with a way of answering your question, uh, this year, it probably will be, will be more challenged. We will be raising equity in our OZs. We will have a lot of conviction and confidence in the programs that we're putting out with the reference to risk. Uh, and there is always transaction volume and deal volume. I mean, personally, I'm just thinking, you know, you bring it up gains to be had. I still own Apple, you know, at like $92 average a share. So, I mean, sure, the price is down, but is my gain gone? No. I mean, right? Uh and I'm not a genius when it comes to investing. So I think there's a lot of people out there. And frankly, especially around opportunity zones, this is a great year if the extension occurs to get us even more attention on where this once in a generational tax haven investment opportunity is. So long answer, but don't think about the short term. Let's think about the long term. Okay, yeah, James, that's great. And you just, you know, you just mentioned legislation, the the extension, I should say. And I want to talk about that legislation now really briefly. Uh, just to recap from the last few months, some OZ reform legislation was introduced into the House and the Senate last April. I was on the record as predicting that it would pass by the end of 2022. It did not. I've got egg on my face. And now we're in a new session of Congress. So now that legislation would need to get reintroduced to the floors of the Senate and the House. James, I know you mentioned earlier you've been in contact with Senator Tim Scott's office. What have you heard? Uh, what do you think is most likely in terms of when it could get reintroduced? And then when do you think it may or may not get passed? Uh, yeah, great question. I've been very fortunate to be in touch. And I know you have been staying in touch with the senator's office as well and, and really paying attention to the legislation and bringing it up quite a bit. So thank you for that. And yes, you were wrong. It didn't get passed in 22. Sorry, man. <laughs> um, I spoke to them this year. I've spoken with them last week, actually. And by all indication, it looks like the legislation will get into a bill form by February. Um, it looks very favorable to get passed. There are a few holdouts on the, there's one actually just one holdout on the Senate side that they need to work uh, a little bit more on. I just just a reminder, it's uh, Senator Cory Booker on the uh, Democratic side and Senator Tim Scott on the Republican side. And they've rallied bipartisan support, even for this extension of their original bill. Um, a lot of it under the idea of reforming some things, allowing fund of funds for smaller investment opportunities. So we were talking about lower, you know, lower capital gain out there in the world. Well, now a fund of fund provision would get people the opportunity to go in at lower dollar amounts than many of the Reg D required amounts. Ours generally is hundred thousand uh, dollars minimum, as example. Um, but it does look like it'll hit bill uh, February, or at least let's just say. This spring, uh, first quarter, maybe beginning of second quarter, uh, and Senator Scott's office does think it will pass. Um, they have very good conviction on that. 
just because the final holdout on the Democratic side, there's only small kind of changes, adjustments, but, you know, it's going to take a little bit to work through that. Unfortunately, the last thing I'll say is that Congress is slightly um, uh, busy with uh, debt, debt, uh, debt ceiling extension, a few other things that are going to suck the vacuum out of real legislation for a little while here. Yeah, indeed, that seems to be the case um, just about every year for the last, uh, for, for for in recent memory at least. Uh, well, James, I, I really appreciate you joining me here today and great insights on opportunity zones and on DSTs. I, I wanted to to zoom out um, for for a minute here in the last few minutes we have, and and just to paint some some context. Capital Square is really viewed as a leader in the private equity real estate industry. That's why I'm so glad we get you on the show again here today, James. Um, you know, with that said, what are some of the most powerful trends that you see playing out over the next few years across that broader private equity real estate landscape? Uh, great question. I, and we're very fortunate that Dr. Peter Lineman from the Wharton School is an economic advisor for us. He's written and rewritten and updated uh, a white paper for us called The Golden Age of Multifamily Investing. Um, originally, uh, we were in touch with him and hired to approve out some of our, our thesis of where we see multifamily investing, our core competency and focus, and then branch that also into multifamily development. Um it's been a great relationship. And, you know, frankly, it's really nice to have somebody with his his team's acumen and focus to be able to provide real hard and raw data. So long, long-winded way of saying we, we still are woefully underhoused here in the United States. We do not have uh, anywhere near the number of housing starts or the number of total uh, housing starts needed to fulfill our current demand on housing. Uh, that includes multifamily, includes single family. Uh, one thing that you know is noted on that in the current market conditions, as interest rates have gone up, as affordability has gone up, you've also seen home builders basically stop. Uh, cancellations and deliveries are going to be way, way down because of the the current economic trouble. It takes time to restart that. So, any of our kind of outlook based on some of the data from Dr. Lenneman is it only becoming even more challenged. And so, for us, development. Uh, housing development, real estate will continue to be a big focus. Opportunity zone or not, that is where we will continue to branch and do more. Specifically on the private equity side, we're branching into uh, build for rent development communities. So these are purpose-built single family or townhome communities, we call them horizontal multifamily, that are built for rent. And that's to fill the need of really two individuals uh, and, and, and family types. Those who uh, are not interested in extending the overall view of renting for a longer period of time, and then those who are priced out or it's unaffordable to buy. And um, that will grow. You know, we, we see a number of statistics that will grow significantly. Um, and that's also a play on kind of improving the overall rental stock for single family homes. Most single family rentals are, you know, and I've owned them individually. They're, you know, grandma's house down the street that's rented for, you know, to a family for a long period of time and does great, but run by a mom and pop, which are many of our investors, including people like myself, as I've said, 
by building and managing and looking at these communities more on a holistic uh, institutional quality, you're delivering a better product to a increasing demand structure. So I'm getting specific on our outlooks in private equity real estate, but I use that in filling a big demand for more housing, even if it's not build and sell or multifamily, et cetera. It really is just getting more housing stock into the country and into specific communities as populations have continued to increase. It's, it's you know, I see some data about rents coming down, et cetera. They're always quoting these big national numbers. Obviously, real estate is super local and geographic. So I really wish they would always add asterisks of nationally, you know, rents are going down 1% after they went up 13% nationally. So you know, you would think that's a good benefit to renters, uh, which is great. I, I, I'd love for things to become more affordable, especially with inflation the way it is. Uh, but but inflation and housing inflation really is a symptom of the long-term challenge we have and just not enough. So our goal, yes, our goal will be continuing opportunity zone, not opportunity zone, to get more development out there and hopefully, you know, development that resonates with investors and advisors as well. That's great, James. It's just that simple. Just build more housing. Uh, it sounds simple anyway, but it's it's been a challenge for a long time in this country. Uh, well, James... Uh, we're out of time. Thank you so much for sharing your insights today. Where can our audience of high net worth investors and advisors go to learn more about you and Capital Square? Absolutely. Advisor-centric distribution model. So please, first and foremost, contact your financial advisor, your registered investment advisor, your wealth manager. Uh, and in addition to that, uh, www.capitalsq.com. That's Capital Square's website. You can easily Google us as well, Capital Square 1031. Any uh, information like that will pop up on our website, contact information, more information about our offerings, history of the company, development cameras. You get to see our construction cams for all of our opportunity zone and not opportunity zone developments, uh, which I actually just go on and goof around a lot. Uh, my, kids ca- my kids catch me like I'm watching YouTube or something. <laughs> But uh, thank you again, Jimmy. It's always just great to spend some time with you. I love what you're doing. It's amazing to see where the industry has gone. Um, You know, someday they're going to give you an award for, you know, being on the forefront of all of this. Uh, And then maybe by then we're talking about $100 billion a year OZ industry, right? We'll see. That'd be be great, James. And a final reminder for our listeners and viewers, I will have show notes available for today's episode at opportunitydb.com slash podcast. And there you'll find links to all of the resources that James and I discussed on the show today. And please be sure to subscribe to us on YouTube or your favorite podcast listening platform. Always get the latest episodes. James, we're out of time and your dog's barking. So I'll let you go. Thanks again. Hey, man, have a great time. I'll see you soon. Okay. Thanks, James. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. As a reminder, you can find us online at dstdatabase.com. The DST Podcast is available on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, and all other podcast listening platforms. Just hit that subscribe or follow button so you get all of our new episodes as we release them. And we'll be back soon with another episode.